wish you a good afternoon and also direct your attention to something which is brand new in the bulletin, which is under sermon notes, which is uh, I have been asked that possibly to include the major bullets of my messages uh, <laughs> in, uh, under, under that section. I thought that I can't, I don't think I can always do it because I think that sometimes there is a value in unfolding the message as it comes and so not letting you know the last point already ahead of time. But to the degree that I can and that it's appropriate, I will. And so you will have three bullet points. So I'm going to, let me just tell you at the beginning of the message what I'm going to say, and then I'll say it. The first, it just, I wanted to just give a state of our broadcast signal as part of our vision uh, to broadcast the glory, the majesty and mercy of God. I'll move there into the framework of our lives, which if you, every time I say that word framework, you should recall the images that we have of our vision statement that our lives are in an expansive, amazing, massive, God-created frame. And we live our lives in the midst of that. So I want to redraw that frame from First Peter. And then from there, we're going to live how we live in the light of that framework by silencing, actually, actually silencing non-Christians, uh, silencing Christian stereotypes by purity and love. I'll get used to this new format in, uh, over time. Well, let me... Uh, let me pray for us first as we set out in the Word of God together. Immerse us, Lord. Father, so many of us here today need living water like a man in, or woman in a desert place. And so we join with the first people of God in the Psalms that in an often dry and weary place, we long for water. And we remember, Lord Jesus, the revelation you gave to that woman that you went to in Samaria that you yourself are that living water, and that we who drink from you, Father, will never thirst again. Not that we will not be thirsty again, but that there will be a satisfying drink of our souls, where our souls inform us that this is what we were made to drink, what we were made to live on. And your word to us is more important than our daily food. We would not be able to live without it, so may we consume your word as you instructed John and Patmos to eat this book. We pray so to do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let, me have, let me just give you a little bit of what I have in mind when I say uh, broadcast signal in Radio Free New Hope. Do you guys know what Radio Free Europe is? Does that, is that something? <laughs> Very few of us were around for Radio Free Europe. Radio Free Europe was a, was a project started in the, in the 40s that when they were, especially in the Cold War, that America looked out in a world that was dominated by communism and fascism. And there was a ground war militarily in order to spread democracy and the values of America. But there was a thought also that we, there was also a war for the minds and hearts of people. And so some people had this amazing, I think brilliant notion that if we could broadcast a signal into Europe that was dominated by communism and fascism. If we get a radio signal and pipe in across the ocean our sound of speech of freedom and the music of freedom, that it would infect the people in their hearing and they would want, they would thirst for something different than the reality that they had in the imprisonment of their totalitarian dictatorship-style governments. For me, that is one of the best illustrations of the gospel. And what I love is that in Europe, there were not just people receiving this transmission signal, 
But they were little miniature jump stations that would receive the signal and then want to transmit that signal in these little pirate enclave radio stations that they were always afraid that somebody would come in and, and destroy their transmitters and receivers. The reason why I like meeting so much, I love Ammerman Hall so much, this place. And the reason why I like it so much is not that I don't love the sanctuary where it's being painted right now, which is if you're wondering why we're not there. I love that sanctuary because I love the fact that when we're there, there's this huge expanse of space. And as soon as you walk into it, your heart is already being prepared for worship. Something above you, the glory of God. Here, I feel like we are huddled in this town hall meeting drawn from all different parts of Westchester and Rockland County. And yay, all right, no one's from New Jersey anymore except for me. We have been gathered here into this town hall meeting. And here we are strategizing about how we can send a signal out to a world that is dominated by a foreign, foreign thinking, a foreign value. How do we get the, and that transmission, that signal is the gospel. And that transmission station, these little jump stations are us actually. So that as Paul would say that you are living letters sent as ambassadors of Christ. If you were writing in this time, in the modern time, he would say you are living radios. That somebody ought to be able to just start to, to listen to you. And you, as you tune into God and you broadcast a signal out that He's sending over the airwaves, they can't pick it up. They don't have the proper equipment. But you do. You've been regenerated. You've been realigned and retuned. Your frequency is now locked onto a transmission that God is sending, a message of His hope and His love. And you are a living radio sent out from God so that people can hear the voice of God radiating through your lives. So let me say that where I think that we are at together as a church in 2009, in, uh, in this month, September, and by reciting just a bit, recalling a bit of our history. December 11th, 2005, so this takes us back almost four years, I preached a sermon called More Passion for a Plant from the book of Jonah 4. And that the burden of that message was to talk about this, the contrast that was in this book in Jonah of the sacrificially always outward moving, always outward reaching, expansive love of God and the inward grabbing, selfish, self-centered, imploding heart of Jonah. And that book, as we unfolded that book, we found out that to run away from those that God has called you to be a living witness, even as you live amongst them, is not ultimately to run away from people, it is ultimately to run away from God. And this Jonah had, in his, his passions were all misaligned, so much so that he was yelling at God because he was saying, God, I never wanted to preach the gospel to these people because I knew that they would repent and they would turn to you and be saved. And his heart was so fickle and his heart was so constructed that it would say, I'm going to love who I want, when I want to love them, in exactly the manner I'm going to love them, no more, no less. And God wanted to just set a bomb in the middle of his heart and explode that notion. His love would just spill out uncontrollably. That's what he wanted from Jonah. And Jonah instead was more passionate about losing this plant than about the people around him that were lost, that did not know Christ. And so four years ago, I put that book of Jonah as a challenge for us. Are we more passionate about our jobs, 
our homes, our cars, our possessions? Is that what really gets our jets working? Would we be willing to do hours of research on the internet to buy the best refrigerator or microwave and yet not even, not even do any bit of all to think about how I can evangelize the people that I live with every single day in my life to have more passion for a plant? And so I read in that sermon, this is again four years back, this song from Scott Wesley Brown, which was kind of popularized in the 70s. So take off the cultural tint of the 70s. And, and I don't know if you'll remember me reciting this song, but this was a song that had some airplay on Christian radio. And it was speaking to all us Jonas in the church. And it went a little like this. He's a kind of a country western singer, as a lot of gospel music can come from. And this is the, these are the words of the song, the lyrics. Oh Lord, I am your faithful servant, and you know I have been for years. I'm here in my pew every Sunday and Wednesday. I've stained it with many a tear. I've given you, I'm going to try and read this authentically. I've given you years of service, and you know that I've given my best. I've never asked you for anything much, so I think I deserve this request. Please don't send me to Africa. I don't think I've got what it takes. I'm just a man. I'm not Tarzan. I hate lions, gorillas, and snakes. Just leave me here in suburbia in my comfortable middle-class life. Please don't send me out into the bush where the natives are restless at night. I'll make sure the money's collected. I'll make sure the money is spent. I'll wash and I'll dry the communion cups. I'll even tithe 11%. I'll volunteer for the nursery and I'll go to the youth group retreat. I'll usher, I'll deacon, I'll go door to door. Just let me keep warming this seat. I read that four years ago because I thought in the words of that comic song, was a pretty accurate descriptor of the state of New Hope Fellowship four years ago. I thought this explains uh, the prevailing cultural sentiment in our fellowship. September in 2009, that is not the prevailing culture here at New Hope Fellowship. It isn't. I in no way believe that the people that are in front of me right now, that you all, that your desire is just to keep warming a seat. That I want my Christianity to be defined by and rise no higher than than my occupying a seat or in a pew on Sunday. That's my Christianity. I do not believe that is the state of our fellowship, the state of our uh, communion together. And so I want to just say briefly, just allowing us to look back and how far we've come, and that there's been a steady stream of missions that has accelerated in both frequency and intensity over the course of these past few years. So that we just completed our summer in this year in 2009, and we sent and welcomed back our U09 missions team. And then Jan just got back from Africa, so I know will get back this coming Wednesday. And as Stan was talking about, he is now getting ready and prepping in two weeks to leave for Mexico City, where he's going to do jungle dentistry where if you know Stan as a dentist at all, he's probably the most meticulous, conscientious person and, and you know, dentist. It's so important to him to get every little detail exactly right. And then he's saying, I'm going to give all that up, get a portable compressor, and do what I can, not because I care and so passionate about dentistry, but by some means that this may show in a visible form the love of God to people who do not know it. And so there's been a culture where he's probably thinking, well, my wife went to Ukraine. I'd like to do something too. I don't want to just stay behind. I also would like to go. And that also is going to be passed down to children as well. And so there's been a culture, and also Jordan and Laura, who were going to go to Honduras, 
who, as you know, the political situation became so precarious in Honduras that they could not be sent there. Well, one of the most beautiful things was praying with them that Sunday when they found out that they really are on the edge and maybe, maybe cannot go. And then receiving emails from Jordan and Lauren about them not being able to go. And the way that the state of their hearts were heavy and on the verge of tears, the fact that they could not be able to go to this missions trip to Honduras. And even though they could not go, the broadcast signal of anybody that is in touch with their lives, it speaks something. What do you cry about? And I know there's many a young couple in their 20s who just got married who are crying about, well, we didn't get to go to, I don't know, Cancun, or we didn't get to go to like, you know, like, I don't know, like Florida. We didn't get to go on this great vacation. We had it all planned out. We had this hotel. It was going to be great food. And there's going to be all kinds of like beachside living and all that. And it didn't work out. And so now we're really upset. But what their hearts were heavy were, where they were saying, we dedicated this time and we dreamed of being able to just broadcast God's love. So we, want, we just want to be mouths, hands, eyes, faces of God's love. That's what we want to do. And for whatever your divine reason, you stopped us short. And we know another time but our hearts are broken for this missed time. That says something. It says something. So to sum up this last point, let me just, I'm, I'm not frequently quoted, I'm not one to quote from my, my previous sermons, but let me just read you this one paragraph I wrote in 2005. The truth remains that if you are a Christian, you could only be so because you have received the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15.1. And if it has taken root in your life to produce a living faith, it means that the good news is alive within you. Do you understand what that imagery is trying to say? That there is already a nurturing of that gospel planted in the soil of your your soil of your soul is good soil. It's able to sustain the gospel in a living fashion. You have become a living carrier of that good news. It is good but it is also news. It is meant to be broadcast. That's before we ever had a vision statement. That is part of what God is doing here, this broadcasting, and that's what these verses are about. When it talks about a people who live their lives in disobedience, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And in verse 9, there is a huge, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that is the reason why I've got to talk now in the second point about the framework in which we extend our lives. These verses operate not in a static, timeless fashion, as if it's just kind of telling you a fact that is meant to say, and you can just kind of, it just exists outside of time. It's just this fact. It is couched in these historical terms, in these terms of time. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
it is putting our lives in a context of a biblical framework where once there was a people that turned away from God and they were not a people. And now we have become the new people of God. And it's putting our lives in a context of a biblical framework. And the reason why that I talk about this frame so often is because I do not want the corridors of, the, of our mind to extend only insofar as this week or this month or this year or next year. Some of you, well, not here actually, but some of your kids, a few anyway, and they're thinking about getting ready to go off to college. And I think all of my early years, I had as the mental furniture in my mind this kind of architecture. I would think about this, on this one hand, I had what I knew, which is where I had come from, and then I had this another hand, the future, where I was reaching for that next place. So there was high school, and then there was college, and then there was college, and then there was another college, and then there was college, and there was grad school, and there was one grad school, and there's another grad school. But then there's always, it's just like swinging from, there's always these two things. And I, and I was at rest, I was at peace, because I knew where I'd come from, and I knew where I was going. And that was the extent of the thought of my mind, of what I lived in that context. And that's just almost, I don't know how to say evaporate, but it's greatly diminished for me. And this is not to say that it is, it is important, I think, to plan. I'm here and I'm, I'm going to go there. These kind of regular pragmatic planning, I think it's just wisdom in our lives. But when I keep on talking about the outward expansive moving heart of God, constantly wants to explode our hearts and explode our vision. That God really does not like being contained in small spaces that only think this week, this month, this year. He is constantly working to give to us a biblical framework that extends from eternity past to the divine ordination of God before the foundations of the world to eternity future and allow our hearts to grow and be free and live in the expanse of His vision for us rather than in the small suffocating places that the world would rather conform and compact us into. This biblical framework, which is why that these are the times when the NIV grieves me. And sometimes I think about moving our entire church off of the NIV, except for that I love, I do love the NIV. I have a lot of hope for the next uh, new translation of the NIV that's coming out soon. But it begins in verse 11, this, the way, the things that I'm talking about. As it says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world. And it's already putting our mind in a certain place. We're, we're moving through. We're meant for eternity. There's eternal purposes and destiny on our life. And it begins that passage, dear friends. And so I thought, that sounds good. There are words in the Greek for friendship. There's words for dear that, that, would, that would modify that word. But then I go back into the Greek and it reads agapetoi. And that word is, I think, transparent to all of us. It comes from agape. The agapetoi are the loved ones. And so every other translation says, beloved, beloved. And every translation has its problems, but it says, beloved. It begins, beloved. And the NIV translators, I, I know, with all good intention, thought, 
No one talks. That's such churchy language. And we want the word to get out. So no one talks this way, beloved. So let's say, dear friends. And so you understand where I'm going. I hope that as we keep on going, it doesn't come say, you know, dudes. I don't. It, there is a reason why it says, beloved, agapetoi. Because Peter is thinking Old Testament. You know this. All, there's Old Testament all, all over these words. When he says, beloved, agapetoi in the context of being a holy nation, a people of God. He's thinking prophecy. He's thinking from of old. That there was once a people that gave up their status as God's people by their rebellion and sin. So much so that in the book of Hosea, as these prophets are looking to the future, they look at the first people of God and they say, in a breaking heart, Hosea says, you are the low on me. You are God's people and you have become, by your sin and turning away from God, you have become the low on me, the not loved. Already in anticipation that in the fullness of time would come a Christ and the Savior that would make these people who once were not loved, who would in Christ make them the beloved ones, the loved ones, the agape toy. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That Since Christ has come, everything has changed. And it puts our lives in this immense, massive framework that we must not forget where we've come from. That song we sang in our worship, one of my absolute favorites. When we sing together, that is our song. It belongs to us. It belongs to the people of God. To look into scriptures and reflect that in our worship and say to Him, Remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise. Remember. That is moving along this framework which the Bible is casting our lives in. So that Simeon, as a faithful member of the first people of God, the faithful Israelite in Jerusalem at the time, already prophetically from God, he sees Christ, this baby Jesus, in the arms of Mary and Joseph. And Simeon, this, this crying baby, is going up to Mary and Joseph and saying, can I hold him? Can I hold him? And Mary and Joseph are saying, who are you and what, why? And they give this to this old aged man and he holds the baby Jesus in his arms and he's just lifting him up and saying, now, Lord, he's speaking to heaven, speaking to God and saying, now God, let your servant depart in peace. I can die now because I have seen the salvation of your people Israel. You did not forget your people. You remembered your people. You remembered your children. You remembered your promise. And I'm holding the entire summation of all your promises in this baby that is going to save and recreate the people and establish the kingdom of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we live post, is the perspective of our lives. That now that there is, there was the first people of God, and now their history has become our history. And it is with everything that we are going to read in this last point, it is framed by this beloved. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, all that is framed by the preceding verse in verse 9, verses, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, 
who do you think that you are? You are a people belonging to God. And it says this in this great verse in the next in the next part, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. If you have snatched out of darkness, it is for this purpose. And so if you sing with gusto, amazing grace, I was blind. I had no capacity to receive the signal of God that was being broadcast to me. But now I see. I was lost, but now I am found. If you can sing that song, if you're singing that song, it is for that, for this purpose, that you would now be able to echo that song and give that away to other people, that you would declare the praises of He who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That frame is something that needs to be firm and solid in your mind. And the reason why I say that is because for some here, it has been through disuse and not being fully aware of that on a daily basis that you feel that your signal maybe is just barely just kind of, just that you feel like when people listen to my life, my coworkers, my fellow students, my neighbors, they get a lot of static and they do not hear with crystal clarity the songs and the worship and the message and the truth of God coming out of my life. And I want them to. That's what I believe now. The sea change in our culture. I want them to. The confidence that this verse gives us is that it is for that very reason you are chosen. It is your purpose is to speak to everyone here. Never, ever give up if that is your desire, your dream. And you've made that your goal. I want to flesh out the, just the, the illustration I used last week, and especially if, if you weren't here last week. I was talking about the, the wave of, of reality TV shows. And I, I don't know if there's a single person right now, you know, unless you know, you're completely just really out in the remotest jungles. You, yeah, you've heard of Susan Boyle? You, you, yes, right? Susan Boyle? And, you know, the, she's, uh, and so she's been to this... Um, over uh, this overnight sensation because she went on this show called Britain's Got Talent. And so she was thinking, okay, I'm a receptionist, but there is more inside of me. I know it. I was made to do something where I could reach people. And I think the reason why that she became so famous is not because she's so talented. She is talented, but it's because so many people identified and said, that's my life. I go to work every day and I know there's something more screaming to get out. And my life, this cannot be what my life is defined as. There's, there's something more. I'm meant to do something where I'm reaching people. And so that is to say that if your dream, and, and Simon Cowell, you know, <laughs> this amazing uh, person, and, you know, so British in his acerbic nature, and he kind of asks in this way, you know, when, when person after person comes on these, on these shows, you know, whatever it is, and he says, okay, so what's the dream here? What's the dream? Like, you know, these different people come up, you know, and they want to be uh, these stars. And then he asks, what's the dream? And some of them get so emotional. They're like, just years and years I've been wanting this. I'm waiting, honestly. I do watch these shows. I'm waiting for the person to say, I don't care about fame or fortune. I want to be the best singer that I possibly can. I, I live for music. You know, it never is. It's almost always... I want to be the next Whitney Houston. I want to be, I mean, I, I, want, to be, I want to be known by millions and, and I, want to, I want to be on the radio and everywhere. I want people to know my name. It's always, that's the dream. 
And I'll reiterate what I said last week. If that's the dream, I cannot help you. I wish you well. I do. I do. If you feel like that all your life you've been, I don't know, uh, a designer, teacher, engineer, whatever it is, but inside of you, you know, house of representative, but inside of you, you feel like that what you've got inside of you is the dance, you know, and that's what you, that's what, that's what you gotta do. That's your passion, not your work, but you gotta, you wanna do, be that great, you know, dancer. That, that's, I cannot help you. I really, I seriously, seriously wish you well. But if you were to come to me and say, <laughs> I'm thinking about leaving my job because what, I, what I've always really wanted to do is to be a juggler. And, I, and I'm going to go on the town show and I'm going to be the, you know, the worldwide famous you know, juggler. I, I think I have to say to you, I think that you should give that up. I don't know if that dream is worth pursuing and losing everything you've, you've built for, I mean built up in this time. If you come up to me and you say, I had this dream when I was young to witness people, to count for Christ and not be passed by. I had this dream that somehow that I would tell people the love of Jesus, that they would feel it. I had this dream once. I once had a dream that, that everybody around me would know how much that I love Jesus. I had this dream that the gospel would be so close to my lips that I would just be one of those, I would be shining God everywhere. I had this dream. And now I've become so jaded and drained and depleted. To stand in this framework means that it is impossible that anyone should say to you, anyone should say to you, including yourself, I'll give up that dream. Let's be realistic now. At this time, at this age, you had your chance and you missed it. Just hunker down and settle in just do your job keep your head low don't make a bad ruckus at work just get by forget about dreams for Christ and the kingdom this text is a standing unmovable reminder that says never never if that is your dream then God himself is on your side and saying I've chosen you so that you may declare the praises of he who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's why I chose you. You are chosen. You are holy. You are even royal. We sang together, and together we will reign with you. That's not rhetoric. That's not bluster. He is the king. And we, his royal priesthood, it is what we are destined for. To lock into this vision and say, no matter how many times I've failed, This is the stream and the path of my life. You all know the definition of insanity, do you? I've heard this so many times. And so by this time, I mean, I I don't think you're not going to find it in Webster's, but I just heard, I just kind of, it kind of clips here and there. It just kind of pops up. You guys know the definition of insanity? The definition of insanity, at least I've heard it in popular terms, is that to keep on doing the same thing. Do you guys, is this familiar? To keep on doing the same thing over and over again expecting different results. Get, does, does that, you know, is it, is it just beating your head against a wall and to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results is the definition of insanity. It's also, def, also the definition of faithfulness. And what separates it from being insanity, from faithfulness, is the hope and the faith and the trust that God Almighty will bring it about. 
to say before the Lord and say, I have tried a thousand times to get up on Monday and to be a viable and vital witness in my workplace and the forces in that secular place are too strong and I just get so weak and my spiritual voice gets so quiet and I don't think I could be a witness, a great shining witness in my place of work. This text is a living anchor that says, try again. Try again. Did you fail the thousand and tenth time? Try again. This wall will come down. Every stroke is leading you closer. Maybe, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it will come down. It is what you have been destined for. You're being propelled by the power of God in His providence. To live in the framework is to be certain, to know what it is that we have been destined for. Destined for, And so to remember and to remind ourselves of who we are. And it is in this context of being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, where he says, now you, the beloved, I urge you then, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That last part when he says that he that they may glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you see that there? It's not just you glorifying God on the day he visits us. So they may glorify God on the day he visits us. It is assuming that there will be people in your life that on the last day of Jesus Christ coming, you'll be standing right next to them. And the shocker in your life will be they'll be standing right next to you. And you'll be thinking thoughts like this. Such a bad witness to you. (laughs) You don't know how badly I wanted to just love you as God loves you, but I was so weak. Here you are at the coming on the day, and you are glorifying God. And so there was some resonance that was coming from you that pointed that person upward. The goal is that these people, that the God that you see, that they may see Him too. They also may glorify Him. That one day they may occupy the seat next to you in the sanctuary. And they may also sing out with you, remember your people. Remember your children. And we will reign with you. There is a dream embedded in these verses for people that you know that currently cannot sing that song. For them to join you in worship and join you and sing. A mighty fortress is our God. And this makes these verses make room next to you and say, God, and when I sit, especially especially when we're in the sanctuary downstairs, there is this space around me and these holes. Jack belongs there. You know, Sarah, my friend, she belongs there. What if they were all around me? as we were worshiping together. I hunger, I ache for them to be here together. They might glorify God together. This, the way, and as we just move to the last point in application, the way it says to do that 
is that we would abstain from sinful desires. And so there is a whole sermon which will not be preached on why you should abstain from sinful desires. In other words, there are these sinful desires and they're threatening to consume you, eat you up, grab you, hold you hostage back into slavery to sin so that you will be having to do their bidding. And you've been set free from all that. So there's a whole different sermon on why you should abstain from sinful desires. Because they war against your soul. It is destructive for you. There's not a single thing which God says, don't touch this. Don't, don't do that. Don't look at this. Don't give your feelings to that. There's not a single thing that God says no to. That if you do say yes to, that in the consuming of it, it will erode your soul. It wars sin Wars against your soul. So there's such a good personal reason for not sinning. But Peter's heart from God here is that there's also another reason which you ought to levy as your internal motivation that when you are tempted to sin that you would use this as your part of your armament and your array against sin as you battle back. And it is because that people would see the goodness, the purity of your life and be attracted to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, that they would not think of you as a hypocrite. That they would say that I know that he's a Christian. I know that she's a Christian. I'm not. And they're not perfect because I can see that they surely are not. They lose their temper sometimes. You know, they they just they're not perfect, but they are. They are the real thing. Every single one of you ought to be that. Somebody wants this. This maybe saying the standard high, but again, same God that we have. You know, somebody once asked. I think it was an atheist talking and saying, you know, somebody was asking, you know, you respect Billy Graham, but you're not a believer. And he said, yes. So what? What is it that you like about Billy Graham so much? And the, and the man said, this is a newspaper article. And he said, he's the real deal. And so each one of us. It's not talking about perfection, but it's talking about a reality that they would not think of you as hypocritical. Now I think of you as hypocrite. Again, flawed, imperfect, weak, but not hypocritical. It is this awful portrayal of Christians that I see all over media, and even media that I like. I like The Office a lot. You know one of the most immoral persons on that whole show? You know, the one that who's actually probably the most unloving, the most unkind, the most critical, judgmental, and immoral one of those is this character named Angela. She also happens to be the devoted, born-again Christian who just is always at church and constantly talking about God. And yet at the same time, she's, she's, she's living one of the most immoral lives in that place. And it is almost with a kind of a schadenfreude, a glee that the world paints this picture of this Christian that is this devoted Bible thumper at the same time is sleeping around with two different men. Purity is something, again, is not the same thing as innocence. Innocence can be lost. Purity is a constantly renewing gift that God gives to us in the blood of Jesus. That we would stand in that purity and walk in that purity. Not only for the sake of our own souls, but for the sake of those around us. Do you remember me sharing about a movie that I watched a long time ago called Quiz Show? That's one of my all-time favorite movies. 
It was about the life of this great scholar who was a great scholar, but then uh, he, his name is Charles Van Doren. This is a story. This is a true story. And he, the reason why that uh, he he was he was a professor at Columbia, and the reason why he had to step down was because he got caught up in these quiz show scandals where he was being given the answers ahead of time. And then he would, you know, be winning all this money and this notoriety and fame. And so this huge scandal just burst. And people, one of the things that people point to, the loss of innocency of America, where they did not think that these quiz shows could be rigged. It didn't occur to people's minds until that scandal broke. This guy, Charles Van Doren, is caught right in the middle of it. His father was the great Mark Van Doren, who had worked hard his whole life with character, integrity, and with utmost excellence in his field. And so as this quiz show scandal is breaking, Charles Van Doren is going to his father and saying, Dad, I, I need to go to court. And he didn't tell his father what had happened. And Mark Van Doren says, why, son? And Charles Van Doren says, well, you know, those quiz show, uh, that quiz show I've been on and winning all this money. He goes, it's been rigged. And I've been getting the answers ahead of time. And Mark Van Doren with a father's heart says, Charlie, you didn't need to do this. Why did you do this? And Charles Van Doren starts to bristle. And he says, I know what I did was wrong. And he's telling me, I will clean up my own mess. And he goes, well, I've got to go to court now. And Mark Van Doren says, I will go with you. A father's heart. I will go with you. And Charles Van Doren saying, Dad, this is my life. And he goes, I'm going to go. I don't need you. I'm going to go to court by myself. And Mark Van Doren says, no, Charlie, let me go with you. And Charles Van Doren says, Dad, it is my name. And Mark Van Doren stands back and says, Your name is my name. It's my name too. You're carrying the Van Doren name. It's my name. People call me Van Doren. To bear the name of Christ. To say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of his. He's my life. He's my heart. It comes with it the awesome responsibility and privilege of being a chosen person belonging to him, being part of his holy nation, of being his child, beloved by God, to say to the world, this is what a loved one looks like. This is what a God person looks like. This is what God's child looks like. And by nature, this is what God himself looks like. So abstain from the sinful desires that war against your soul for your own good. But for the sake also of your testimony, think about those that you are currently trying to witness to before when you are tempted to sin and think, if they could see me now, what would that do to my witness? So therefore, no, I abstain from this sin for the sake of those people that I want them to know what Christ is like. So abstaining from sinful desire and our purity. And then the second point of this is that when it says, that live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If you want to jump down to the last part of this passage. For it is God's will in verse 15 that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect. That means honor to everybody. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. 
Here's talking about silencing the foolish talk of unbelievers. In their context, in the first century, when Peter was writing, there's always gossip about Christians. There will always be gossip about Christians. There'll be gossip about you, Christian. And the gossip around that, it's gossip, it's just the gossip, nature of the gossip has changed. The gossip at that time, if you were a Christian trying to evangelize to a non-Christian, they, their preconceived notion of a Christian would be something like this. Aren't you, aren't you guys cannibals? I heard you guys were, seriously, this is the context that Peter's writing to. I heard you guys were cannibals. And the reason why is because someplace they had heard that we eat the Savior and the, the Lord's Supper, that we eat Christ's body. And so they, so they thought, oh, they're, they're cannibals. And then they thought that they were, the believers were all incestuous because they call each other brother and sister and then they marry them. Well, well this is a, so this is a weird, really hideous group of people. And they're painted with that brush. How do you silence that foolish talk? You could talk and talk and talk and talk. And the counsel of First Peter is that there is a way to silence this foolish talk about what Christians are and what they're like by the goodness of your life. People think all kinds of horrible things about Christians. Some good things too, but they also think some horrible things. Judgmental. And one of the things that the media loves to portray Christians as more than anything else is Christians are primarily defined by and defined as their haters. They are the ones who hate homosexuals and hate abortionists and hate liberals who hate. They are the haters. How do you silence that? You can't just say it. Love in a genuine, sincere fashion is the only thing that will ever silence that foolish talk and it will stop them absolutely short. Two illustrations then. That there's there's a story. John Piper tells a story about this man named Doug Nichols, who was there, who's now the international director of Action International, but who was uh, once a missionary with a OM Operation Mobilization. And in ministering and evangelizing to people in India, he himself, this just, I just, I, somebody who counted the cost before he went to a place like India and therefore paid the cost. He he he, he contracted tuberculosis while he was there. And so he was, ended up in a tuberculosis sanitarium. They would, they would put people who, at that time at, at, in India, they would put the people away into a, into a separate section to quarantine them, the people who had tuberculosis. And so as he's living there and thinking, I was supposed to be a missionary for you, God, and speak the gospel. Now I'm locked up in this tuberculosis sanitarium. What am I doing here? And so he would try and witness to people and tell. He would try to speak the gospel to people around him in, the, in that sanatorium. And they would have none of it. <laughs> All the preconceived, foolish talk about Christians had already lodged in their mind. I, we know who you, who you are. This Westerner, this Christian who wants to just evangelize us so that they can be arrogant and feel like they've won us over and become more powerful. No, thank you. And there's this one man who was aged and who, in his tuberculosis, had become so advanced that he could barely move. And this piteous individual was, was just avoided by everybody because he would be constantly soiling himself and laying in his own filth. And one time, and then a nurse walks in and sees him that he had again soiled himself again and so angry by this that she slaps him. And so this broken man is there and everybody hates him 
as he cries and he's just, just in this completely pathetic uh, state. And at three o'clock in the, in, in the middle of the night, he again starts to cry. And the reason why he's crying is because he is trying with all of his might to get up so he can go to the bathroom so that he would not soil himself and not make a stench for him and everybody else around him. He's crying with the effort of trying to get up and go to the bathroom and he can't do it. And everyone just saying, shut up, old man. Doug Nichols gets up and he starts to approach him. And this old man starts to cower, afraid that here's the person that he's going to hit him. And he just scoops him up gently. And he takes him to the bathroom. And he waits until he's done. And then he cleans him. And he puts him back down. And as he's putting him down, this old man kisses his cheek. Four o'clock in the morning, he is awoken to a steaming cup of tea next to him. As one of the other unbelievers said, All right, I'm ready to hear about this gospel. I can hear about your God. Is he anything like you? I can listen. Tell, tell me. That the foolish talk of unbelievers will be silenced by the radiant nature of the love which is in us, not because of us, but because of Christ Jesus. And if you feel like you failed in this, the long obedience in the same direction means you try again. Never say, okay, it's over. It's not. It's impossible that it should be. The living hope that's given to us in Christ Jesus means you try again and again. There are a 70 times 7 number, which is infinite, meaning chances for you to try again. Let me close with Hotel Rwanda, please. Just This is last illustration. Watched it with, with Steve Hong. And you know the, the killer scene? There were a billion killer scenes in that movie for me. Don Cheeto, holy cow. He's playing the, the part of this guy, Paul Rosetta Begina, who was trying to save people from the, the ethnic cleansing, the genocide that claimed, what, a million lives in Rwanda. And so as the genocide is happening, and as these militia are coming with machetes, this guerrilla militia, militia, killing and just slaughtering wholesale people, just left and right, the UN evacuates Westerners out. And as they're being airlifted in transport to safety, they're, they're rescued in these great UN-deployed modern helicopters. And as people are, and as the militia is encroaching to kill all the indigenous people there, there's one cameraman who is just there filming. He gets into the bus that will take him to the chopper. And through the window, he sees all the people that he's leaving behind that are going to die as he is being rescued and lifted to safety. And he looks back and he says, I've never felt so ashamed in my life. I'm safe. I'm going back to America. I'm, I'm going to be. I'm going to be in a mall next week as these people are getting killed. And there's just, I can't get through this glass. I'm safe. I've been saved. But all these people are are going to die outside that window. If you've ever been one that's thought, I feel like that. I know I'm saved, but I want to reach through the glass of my life, this invisible wall. I want to say I want other people to be saved too. Let me just tell you this story just briefly. I mean, just to, to close this off, I saw that movie with Steve Hong, and you know we talked a lot of after that movie. You know, we just we just we just met each other. It was our you know our first mandate, and so you know uh, as we were talking, you know Steve was telling me about his love for Africa, 
and his heart for the people of Africa, and how he had once spent uh, a season, about a few months, uh, in a medical missions in Africa. And he said these words to me. He said, I don't know if I'm ever going to make it back. Well, he's there right now. And then for the past few months, if I think today he's speaking to a group of pastors about why that they must allow AIDS medicine to be given to their people and not just pray for faith. And only he could do that, actually. Any other, so even Christian doctor would not understand. It's a faith problem. They need to be spoken to about the faith that it takes to give somebody medicine, not just to withhold it. He's doing that right now in Africa. He's a light radiating in Africa right now. Don't ever say, I can't do that. That's not me. Or I'm not going to be a, a, a broadcast light. It is for that purpose you have been chosen. So that you may declare the praises of he who called you out of darkness. It's his marvelous light. So we close in prayer. And as uh, we uh, close in worship, yes, it's uh, Sunday afternoon. And so... Tomorrow is the start of our week, Monday. And I'd like to address some of you, especially who thought I go through the same thing every every Monday. Uh, you know, I, I think about Sunday about the need and to evangelize in my place of work and, and the love that I have from God for people in my workplace. And every Monday I fail. Well, okay. <laughs> okay. It's all it's all right. Try again. Try again. The long obedience in the same direction, you will see things. And then in the last day, there will be great many surprises. That long obedience will take us there. Would you pray with me as we close? pray for listening ears, Father, among the people here. And in the way that I am confident that every Sunday, every week, that you have a word for your people because of your love for them. We read in your scriptures and your truths eternal that that love is not restricted just to believers. You seem to love everybody. And you seem to want everyone to know you. That they not perish come to a saving knowledge of you God in Christ Jesus and that the glory of your son would be shining Father in their minds and in their lives so we ask Father God would you allow people to be receptive and hear the word not just to them but through them the word that you have to give to an unbelieving co-worker or fellow student neighbor family member would you allow them to feel you how much that you love them and how much you like a shepherd desire to seek and save them. God, would you let there be a burden that is holy and deep and even sweet to bear. If this person must know you, and I must do whatever I can, God, to be your light into this person's darkness. We pray that, Father, together as a congregation too. And just real briefly, Father, we lift up JVI and even start that by these good works we may silence the foolish talk of unbelievers they may know us as those not only as the loved ones but the loving ones in Christ Jesus